I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome to the broadcast Natalie Dean. She is Professor of Biostatistics. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, You study particularly emerging infectious disease and vaccine design. There's a lot of statistics that are going to be important to developing an effective vaccine, but we may not even be there yet. What statistics are you most looking at and studying right now? What our research has focused on for the past five, six years has been how do we actually tell if a vaccine works, if a new vaccine is working in the context of a public health emergency? So we started working with Ebola and then we were thinking about Zika and release respiratory syndrome and loss of fever. And now, you know, the, the unexpected disease X, which here is the novel coronavirus. So, um, so what we're thinking about is what will these phase three clinical trials look like, these large trials where we're actually evaluating whether the vaccine protects against disease. So far, we've just had immune response data, but that doesn't always translate into actually protecting someone um, from illness and death. So, um, so what we're focusing on is, yeah, what are these, what's the data going to be coming out of these big trials? And, um, and how are we going to use that to inform regulatory decisions and ultimately decide whether we can use this in a larger population. So you study the trillion-dollar question, and, and I mean, it's it's about billions of lives right now. Um, that is, how can you ensure that the deployment of a vaccine is going to be efficacious and the distribution of it ultimately equitable? Um, so... In assessing the stage three results, what are the the basic thresholds of um, graduating to a vaccination of a of a city of a country of a of a planet? Um, what are you looking for at that stage three from from a, a numbers perspective to 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 have the confidence to deploy it? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, it's helpful to back up and, you know, uh, outline what exactly a phase three trial looks like. And it's thousands of um, participants. These are adult participants that uh, are individually randomized to receive either the, the new vaccine or placebo or in some cases, you know, a vaccine for some other disease like meningitis. So, but it's something that is will not be, you know, will not work against um, coronavirus. And so, um, so we have thousands of participants that are randomized. They don't know what they've received, and then they're followed over time, and they're called frequently to see if they have any symptoms. Um, they're checked on for um, any side effects or adverse events, and then um, if they have symptoms, they're tested, and then we're comparing the number of. Uh, cases in the vaccinated arm versus the unvaccinated arm. And we're, when we have enough numbers, we have big enough numbers, we can start to distinguish um, and tell whether the vaccine is actually working as intended. So the speed of the trial is going to depend on the trial being placed in a hotspot where there is enough infection, enough exposure, um, such that we can actually reliably assess a difference between the two groups. Um, and so what we're looking for, what the FDA has pre-specified is that a vaccine should be at least 
50% effective. That means that it, the vaccinated arm has 50% fewer um, uh, disease cases than, uh, than the unvaccinated arm. And we need to be confident that the, that the um, efficacy of the vaccine is greater than 30%. So we, what we really want to avoid is a setting where we have a low efficacy vaccine um, because rolling that out will, uh, you know, that requires resources. People may uh, have adopt riskier behavior um, without, any, even though they're not even that well protected, there may be side effects. I mean, may it may um, jeopardize just trust in the process. So the FDA has set this 50%, you know, target with a 30% lower bound. So when you're talking about the balancing act of, of wanting something that's both efficacious, but that is low risk. It would seem to me that before you even determine efficacy and, and deploy it in a hot spot, you need to establish that under a certain percent of the population will die or will become um, severely sick as a result of, of taking the vaccine. So, where is that in the calculus right now? Yeah, so safety is always the priority. Um, vaccines are unique in that we're giving them to healthy people. I mean, it's a different risk-benefit profile than, you know, treating stage four cancer. So, I mean, we want a very, very, very good a minimal side effect profile. And so that is the purpose of these trials. I mean, the early phase trials, uh, they're, they're quite small, you know, um, under a thousand participants. And that's why we have the larger trials, um, you know, some 30,000, you know, like tens of thousands of participants. And from that, we can get a much better sense of the potential side effects and uh, are more equipped to detect even rare effects. Um, typically, you know, we have pretty good evidence so far that these products are safe. I mean, we have information from uh, other types of vaccines that have used the same technology. So what some of the reason that these vaccines were able to be quickly developed is because we had similar technology targeting other diseases. And you could take that off the shelf and modify it. And so we have some set of experience. Um, and the early phase trials, you know, they've showed side effects like fever or soreness. I mean, those are the types of things we expect. Um, and so the, the bigger trials will help us characterize, you know, how frequently that occurs. And what we really want to do is rule out, you know, feel confident that there are none of these um, severe side effects. And, uh, and certainly, you know, yeah, death is not part of the, the discussion. I mean, anything that would be that serious um, would, you know, would not be considered for wider use. Is there a risk that this unique vaccine, any one of them that are being developed right now, um, in order to be effective, could have new risks that we're not used to with, uh, with the polio vaccine or with the earlier and, and annual influenza vaccines? It's an interesting question. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a vaccinologist, so I, you know, I know the I know the, the the broad features of the different vaccines, but not the you know all the specific mechanisms you know exactly. I but I certainly from the people I work with, I haven't heard anything indicating that we would expect any long term uh, effects. I mean, typically side effects are are quite um, we say you know they occur they would occur shortly after vaccination. So 
you know, like the fever or soreness um, of a vaccine. I mean, that occurs, uh, you know, within within days or, or, or we might, you know, we're, we're focused our attention within a few weeks. I haven't heard, any, heard anything about long-term effects. Um, one thing that we are paying close attention to is the potential for enhanced disease. So, you know, there's some theoretical risk. It was observed with um, other coronavirus vaccines uh, that, that were developed, but not so far with any of the, um, the ones targeting this particular virus in any of the early trials. Um, but there is some theoretical risk that a vaccine could enhance the severity of disease given you're infected. So, um, so among the people who are vaccinated, if they go on to get infected, um, that, that they could cause a sort of an overreactive immune response. So one of the functions of these trials is to feel, you know, along with animal data, along with the early phase data, is to be confident that that's not occurring because we would not want to use a product that, you know, could make people um, uh, more susceptible to severe disease. The way that a vaccine is designed, though, we should tell our listeners, is to give you the minimum amount of virus that is going to, to uh, create the antibodies um, and potential immunity. So, you know, the, to, to just provide the context here, it, the reality is you're getting a very small dose, but you're supposed to see from that small dose um, a potential lifelong effect. And it, it's clear so far, based on the early conversation around the vaccine, that this is something that would likely require one or more boosters, right? Um, there are different types of technologies for, for vaccines. Uh, and there is one particular technology, live attenuated vaccines, where you are actually receiving a small dose of the virus that has been modified, manipulated in a way such that it doesn't cause disease. So that though that technology is actually very slow to develop because you have to kind of grow the strain, modify the strain. Um, most of what the, the vaccines that are furthest along right now, like the RNA vaccine, for example, you're inputting some genetic code um, and then it expresses, so the, the vaccine expresses something that looks like the virus. So it's not actually the virus. Um, and same with the, like the, um, the Oxford vaccine, it has part that looks like the surface of the virus. Um, so what your body sees. And so there's not actually any virus involved in there. There's not any coronavirus in there. It's just the, the protein. And based on this, the stats that you have observed uh, historically, is one or more of those approaches more effective, the, the live virus versus the imitation virus? I mean, it's, it's a real strength that we're pursuing so many different types of technologies. And some of the te- technologies that are furthest along um, were technologies that were designed specifically for pandemics, like that RNA product. Um, and so it was meant to be that you could sort of plug in the virus. Um, it's like a template, and then you can quickly manufacture, you know, quickly get a vaccine out of it. The problem with some of these more innovative technologies is that you know, we have less experience with them. Um, they're not tried and true technologies. So uh, we, you know, we have less experience with the manufacturing. We have less experience, like, we don't have any licensed vaccines using that technology. So it just hasn't been proved. It hasn't proven it's worth yet, but, you know, coming up in the rear, you know, we have the more classical technologies 
Um, and so, and so when I think about some of the first ones, the earliest ones, those to me seem less likely to be successful than some of the, the ones that are, are, I mean, of course we hope that the earlier ones are successful, but, um, even if they are not, then there are, you know, more standard technologies, things that we have really have used or used to uh, working with. How would the live virus, um, or, or the, um, sort of, it's not necessarily always live, but you know the, the sort of traditional approach that you describe work in the case of COVID. Is it um, something that could work? Yeah, I mean it could. Yes, I mean these are these are different. You know, classical vaccine approaches. I mean, but, but um, you're just saying that it, it takes a lot longer. That yeah, that one in particular takes the longest. But there are other things um, like like basically using a killed version or an activated version of the virus. So um, it's different from the distinction is whether it can replicate. So an, a, um, a weakened version of the virus can, can replicate and can cause a stronger immune response. Um, but that's a little bit more difficult to get right. There are also vaccines that are called inactivated vaccines, or you're basically getting like a killed version. Um, and so your body can see the, the virus bits um, and, and respond to that, generate an immune response to that, but it may not be as strong. But th- but that is an example of a the inactivated is you know that's being pursued as well. That's further along than the attenuated, um, but not quite as far along as the the really the um, the newest technology. You know, will it be that you and your colleagues view the stage three results and do some statistical? comparison or will, will it not mm-hmm. get to be that academic or rigorous? I mean, we certainly hope that a virus, uh, um, that, that is causing this widespread, uh, debilitation across society, uh, that the appropriate response w- will be a well-timed effective one, um, and not an arbitrary rushed one. Um, so do you anticipate that, you know, folks like you will be looking at the vaccines and the, and this and the data side by side. You know, over the coming months, or is that not the way it will work? Oh, there, I mean, there's lots of looking <laughs> looking at the data. I mean, uh, I, if your if your question is about comparing the differences between the vaccines, um, so I mean, because these trials are going to take differing amounts of time to complete. And one thing that so I've been involved with the World Health Organization's solidarity trial, which is a slightly different approach from some of the other trials that are sort of one vaccine at a time. Um, the idea with the WHO's trial, and it's similar to their treatment trial, is that there are several arms. Um, so individuals participate in a trial, but they could be randomized to more than one. You know, there are different vaccines that they could be randomized to. Um, and so different vaccines can kind of enter in uh, over time. And that allows a more uh, natural comparison between between the products. I mean, it's all it's I anticipate, you know, yeah. So trials are going to take differing amounts of time to to conclude and, and we, we get you know results. And then and then from that, it takes even more time for a vaccine to become widely available. And so the question kind of happens, what happens when you know that something's working, but then 
uh, it's not available in your area. And what we want to keep doing is keep testing other vaccines because we want to make sure that we're getting the best ones. And the first one may not necessarily be the best one. So we're the, the hope is to, to keep searching um, to try and identify better and better candidates. Um, you know, it is yeah. polio the model for the, the sort of statistical evidence of success and um, you know, what, again, what would you be pleased with as a stage three results in terms of efficacy, um, you know, that, that would lead you to believe that, that, that it's, it's, uh, strong enough to route COVID. Yeah. So I, I think a key point, a few key points. So one is, I mean, 50% is that kind of, we want it to be like at least 50% effective, but of course we want it to be, you know, more effective. I mean, measles vaccines are highly um, efficacious. And, and I worked on an Ebola vaccine that was very uh, efficacious. And that I mean the ideal, I mean, vaccines, when they work well, can work really well. So that's the ideal. Um, and so, you know, we say we want like ideally at least 70%, even more is better. Um you know, so just more better, you know, more efficacious is better, but uh, but we'd be willing to start with 50%. Another key thing is um, whether the vaccine actually prevents infection or if it just reduces the severity of disease. Sometimes there are vaccines where they don't prevent you from being infected, um, but given infection, you're less likely to get severely ill. You're less likely to get pneumonia or need to be hospitalized. Um, and so that's borne out a little. We've seen that a little bit in some of the animal data for some, uh, at least one vaccine, that the monkeys um, still had some replication of the virus in their nose, but they didn't get pneumonia. And so um, the different types of characteristics of the vaccines, how well they work, I mean, that will impact how they're used and whether we can uh, get herd immunity, for example, from a vaccine. Like if a vaccine's not preventing infection, then um, then that, that's not going to really help us towards herd immunity. So is it, it will depend a lot upon what we see in the results about how the vaccine is actually working, which age groups it's working in. I mean, there are a lot of different questions uh, that we want to answer. Does the unique asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission, but particularly the asymptomatic transmission, does that make um, the effectiveness of a vaccine regimen and then tracking um, it more difficult? Yeah, so it means that when we're uh, following up participants in the trial, that there may be some infections that we miss. Um, so we're following people up, we're, you know, we're calling them about symptoms. And so if they're infected and they don't develop any symptoms, then they may not be counted. Um, and what we would need and what some trials are you know, doing is they finding a different way to tell if someone is infected. One thing you can do is measure their, you know, kind of every once in a while measure their antibody response. And so there are um, ways to tell whether someone has been infected without just, uh, without PCR confirmation. Because if you have to, if you have to do the nasal swab test to confirm an infection, then you'd have to be testing people almost constantly. Um, to be able to pick up someone who doesn't even know they're 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 infected, um, so uh, that's not really feasible in trials that have thirty thousand people. So um, so there are different types of 
like the antibody tests and different approaches that we use to, to capture the infection part. But primarily we're focused on the disease part. We really want to know if the, if the vaccine can prevent, you know, disease. I mean, that's the, the morbidity, the sickness, the illness. I mean, that, that's what we're really trying to prevent. And then finally, I want to ask you about human challenge trials, because they appear not only to be a way to, to expedite the process of evaluating efficacy, uh, but also can give you some hard and straight answers in a way that perhaps is unique. Um, and I just want you to weigh in on, you know, the, the usefulness of potential challenge trials and, you know, to the extent you are interested in um, explaining how they could work effectively and whether they can be done humanely. Yeah, that's a, it's a very interesting topic. I mean, I, I really think the discussion around it is, is very useful. And there have been some very concrete discussions about, you know, laying out what, what is the value? What, um, and what are the, what are the parameters? What are the settings where this is, is ethically acceptable? Um, it, you know, they can be fairly small studies and they can get very detailed information about, uh, someone's immune response and whether the vaccine is, is protecting them because you know exactly when they've been infected and you can test them frequently with lab assays to really monitor their immune response. Um, the cha- you know, the, the problem is that we don't, you know, we don't have uh, highly effective treatments yet. We don't have a cure and we don't quite understand who exactly gets severely ill. And there are some young people who get severely ill. These these trials would tend to target um, younger, healthy adults, and they wouldn't be targeting the higher-risk older populations or people who have a lot of other illnesses. But some of those younger adults do get sick. I mean, it is rare. Uh, but, you know, one challenge in my mind um, is that we don't quite know what to do with the data from a human challenge. We get some set of information, but, you know, we may know that the vaccine protects people who are 20 to, you know, 20 to 30. But then what we really want is information about the older population. And so um, it's not clear that we can generalize results from a human challenge trial to, uh, to different populations that have different illnesses or um, are older. And so I see human challenge trials as a, you know, potential added source of information, but not as a replacement because it, do, it also doesn't generate the, the, the great amount of safety data we need. I mean, by, by having thousands and thousands of participants, that's where we really get a lot of the safety information. And it also can't replace the, the generation, you know, our understanding about different risk groups and how they respond to the vaccine. Right. But is it more helpful in assessing the answer to the question you posed a few minutes ago, which is, Will it help? Will this vaccine protect you against the infection, um, or will it provide, you know, only lessen the effect of the of the um, of the infection? It, would would human challenge trials provide more insight on that, or no? I think they would be able to provide more insight about. Uh, whether it's preventing infection, um, particularly if you're using a, a young population where a lot of people will have mild illness, it's going to be hard to 
to, to and the numbers are relatively small, it's going to be hard to tell whether um, how much it's it's preventing disease and particularly severe disease. Um, you know, I mean, the big issue is is also uh, what's the right you know, there's a lot of logistics to human challenge trials, um, figuring out the right dose and whether that reflects what people are actually exposed to in the real world. I mean, there's, as a, it's actually very challenging to figure out the exact, you know, the, the amount of virus that someone should be exposed to and, and find that in a way that is generalizable to the real world. I mean, you could, you could have like a huge dose of virus uh, and the vaccine can't pre- prevent against that, but maybe the vaccine would have been fine, you know, protecting against a lower dose, or you could have a dose that's kind of uh, too low, but then you know, <laughs> then no one gets infected, but you can't tell if that was just because of the vaccine or not. It's actually quite difficult to figure out the, the right dose. Well, um, what, we, what we know is, is what we don't know. We know that we don't know whether it's the dose of virus or genetics that actually make us more predisposed to be infected or become very ill. I mean, we know Folks with pre-existing conditions are always going to be more vulnerable, but there have been new advances in understanding potential genetic predispositions. Um, now that the virus is so widespread, it's going to have to inoculate and immunize uh, everyone, a uh, potential uh, vaccine. But, but presumably, while a human challenge trial could be or would be a smaller scale, you could bring people together with a lot of different genetic makeups and try to find a a, a vaccine that can be over 50% effective uh, with, with all of those people. I mean, it's, it's a way to, to kind of marshal as much diversity in the, in the potential enrollees of that. No. Yeah. I I mean, I, I'm not so sure about the, the genetic part. I, I so I, you know we we have some understanding, right? So you brought up the the, the other illnesses, the comorbidities, and um, some of that is you know relates to like how your immune system is functioning, and that's one of the reasons why older you know why we think older people uh, tend to get more severe diseases because there's this dysregulation of their immune system. So there are still some aspects that we haven't, we don't quite understand. Like we don't understand why some young people get so sick. Um, And so, so while we can have representation, you know, genetically, uh, we're still not going to be including in that trial people who have other illnesses, people who are older. Um, So, you know, I think I, I do think that they can contribute an important source of information. I just think there's some misunderstandings about how much it can contribute and how complex they are to set up and run. And that it's not obvious to me that it is faster than running um, a trial since these trials are already uh, underway and, and more starting every day. Natalie Dean, assistant professor of biostatistics at the University of Florida. Thanks so much for your insight today. Yeah, thank you for having me.